You're now tuned in to the Desire to Trade podcast, a show where we bring you the best figures of the trading world and teach you how you can become a successful trader. This is your host, Etienne Kret. Etienne Kret here, Forex trader and founder of Desire to Trade. Welcome to episode 112 of the Desire to Trade podcast. I really hope you guys took the time to listen to last week's episode with Samuel Leach. A lot of good lesson on what it takes to trade for a prop firm and make a lot of money in this trading business. If you didn't listen to it, I recommend you go check it out. It's episode 111. In this episode, I'm discussing with someone recommended to me by a previous guest. William Fung is a trader with a very interesting institutional background. He's been working for over 20 years between institutions in Hong Kong and Australia. What I particularly like with this interview is to hear the stories of what it looks like to trade for big institutions and work for them. William began on the ground floors of big companies and has made his way up through his experiences and track record. He shared exactly how he did it on this podcast. So without further ado, Please help me welcome the trader with over 10 years of macroeconomic experience, William Fung. William Fung, welcome to the podcast. How's it going today? Hey, good, great. Excellent weather in Melbourne. Yeah. How's that over there? <laughs> cool. Completely other side of the world. You're in Melbourne right now. I'm in Montreal, which is exactly the opposite, pretty much. So what I like to ask my guests first, usually, is what is one quote that inspires you? I guess in the investment trading world, I would say that from experience, the quote will be, those who talk don't really know. Those who know don't usually talk. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Good. I've heard that many times, but it's really good for investing. Cool. Tell yeah, us what's going on these so. days in your life and what you're up to, basically. Well, after spending almost 20 plus years around Asia Pacific, I've worked in Seoul in Korea, I've worked in Hong Kong, worked in Singapore, I worked in mainland China, I worked in Sydney. So I've been bouncing around quite a bit. And finally, um, earlier this year, we've decided to settle back in Melbourne, Australia. As you can see, I'm sitting in my home at the moment, just enjoying the lovely spring weather. So, you know, we're settling back in and enjoying the place. Nice, nice. I'm curious <laughs> to know a little bit because we've talked a little bit before and Mandy Parafjani, which I had on the podcast before, told me a little bit about you. She told me a little bit about the story and what you've been up to. But I'm curious to know, how did you get involved in trading in the first place? How did you hear about trading the first time? And how did you start basically in trading? Yeah, yeah. It was actually a really lucky but strange path I took. Because uh, as you know, I pretty much grew up in uh, country Victoria over here in Australia. I grew up in a little town with 4,000 people. So it was big far away from the big metropolis financial world. But after my first economics degree, I started working in a, as a trainee marine insurance underwriter for a company called Zurich Insurance here in Melbourne. Nine months of that, I knew that this was not the path I want to take for the career. And uh, it was just very dull, a lot of documentation and a lot of phone calls, just discussing minor details, etc. So I took the big risk. I went with my girlfriend. I said, well, let's go to Hong Kong, the origin, <laughs> the big financial hub. I said, I'll give myself three months to look for a job and look for a career path. If I fail within three months, I'll come back and do whatever. After two and a half months over there, I was lucky enough to land off something 
got a call from a uh, German merchant bank at that time called SLB. And out of 300 people who put in their CV, and I think it's like five rounds of interviews, I was lucky enough to land myself a dealer trainee job. So this was a program they picked two uh, youngsters and uh, literally a 12-month training program around the dealing room. So I went into the ethics side, the interest rate side, even the back offices, the sales, the private banking, everything. After 12 months training, I settled in uh, spot ethics and looking after the night desk orders and that. So I had to work nighttime for about six months. So that was my entry into the trading world. (laughs) (laughs) And how was it from there? Because I know a lot of people get involved in trading first. Maybe they succeed, maybe they don't succeed at first, but then they kind of crash after some time. Was it like that for you or was it pretty much good from the start? Well, it was tricky, right? I mean, a lot of pressure, a lot of intensity, especially if you don't know anything, right? Going in green and it was very tough. But I was very lucky in a way. After a training program and six months there, a big bang actually decided to look at my CV and took me on. HSBC Hong Kong at that time had something like 250 people in their huge dealing room. And I was recruiting to the spot ethics desk, learning from the best. Back then it was the dollar mark the dollar yen. So I sat between those two market makers and learned from that. The mark yen at that day has still had a, a arbitrage system where you use this electronic brokerage system, EBS, and they would arbitrage between the two. So it was quite an adventure. It was very good stuff. I still remember the first time I, I, I was asked to call out on the Reuters stealing this system to purchase dollar yen for a customer. It was literally like, 10 of us going out and hitting the market once, and I hit the wrong side. <laughs> it was the scariest anything. Uh, it was basically um, a lot of intuition and experience gained from that. I later on then settled into a um, taking over the Malaysian Ringgit NDF book. And that was during the Asian crisis, 97. That was a very scary time. I remember we started at 6 a.m. in the morning helping the, the central banks around Asia to defend their currencies against the big funds like Soros and Tiger Funds, who used the investment banks, uh, US investment banks against us. And I worked till something like midnight almost every day of the week. Wow. <laughs> it was very scary <laughs> moment. <laughs> but during 1998, um, when the ringgit was packed against the dollar, I literally lost my role straight away overnight. And uh, I was lucky enough to be transferred into interest rate derivatives desk, where I helped to uh, learn and look after the structurings, the IRS, interest rates for futures, money market, etc. So that was excellent. I spent five years at HSBC and um, it was much big memories. Mm-hmm. I was then um, lucky enough to get another venture came along. I was recruited by Citibank in Hong Kong at that time. They were actually merging with uh, Solomon's with Barney. So Solomon Brothers is the, the star of Lies Poker, the book uh, written and got famous by Michael Lewis. So you know that the fixed income sales you know, were like the big shots, the huge players in the US bond market. I was hired to, into a new role where I, I combined the risk appetite of the Asian market on the Citibank platform, as well as the sales force from the fixed income guys from the Soli, Solomon sales team. I was just running between two dealing rooms every day. It was like they were not merging into one building at that time. So that was fascinating. It was a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. And how was it at that time? I'm curious because were you trading the whole time or were you doing some different kind of jobs? 
Well, you had to be trading because like, basically you structure these products to be sold by the sales guys. But those products, right, there's credit risk associated, there's interest rate risk associated. Sometimes there's foreign exchange risk associated as well because I could be selling a Hong Kong dollar structure. I could be selling a Roman B structure or a euro structure versus dollar, etc. And because I was based in Hong Kong, the balance sheet is actually in Hong Kong dollars. So with all these structures that go through, I actually have foreign exchange risk. I have interest rate risk. I actually have volatility risk as well because as you try to enhance the yield of these structures, basically you also have optionality put into it where the customer sells you an option to enhance the yield and boost up the yield for these structures. So you're basically hedging against the product that you sell? Uh, I think so, yes. Okay, cool, cool. And then could you tell us like what a day would be like of someone in an institution like this or trader? Is it Interesting. Does it get boring over time or what does that look like? Well, apart from running between the two places, <laughs> which exhausts you a bit. I mean, having morning meetings and solely sales and then going back to manage risk and see painful. The day is never boring, right? And pretty much what I learned from the mentor is basically that you have to be ready when the markets start to move. Right? You can't just get ready when it does. So there's a lot of reading into it. There's a lot of learning into it. You have to know which structures to price. You have to understand individual swaptionalities, the optionalities in the market. You have to be prepared on different credits, new issues that comes out. You just literally have to do 80% preparation before the market moves and probably 20% it's the trading itself. Mm-hmm. Cool. And yeah. what kind of preparation you do? Is it something you do on your own or with the team? Or uh, You do have to work with team. Obviously, you work with other traders. There's ethics traders that you offload the risk to. There's optionality traders. You also work with brokers, obviously, interbank brokers, where they quote the prices for you offload the risk. And then you have to work with salespeople, especially in large institution banks like City and Solly. And their sales force were just huge and very aggressive. So you have to constantly be liaising with them and uh, get up to date from what their customer needs are. And they get updates from you on what the market's actually demanding and supplying. And what would be your biggest failures working in an institution like this? Well, I guess the biggest uh, failures I had was after moving a few rounds. After City, I was actually uh, recruited by the buy side, uh, first time moving into a hedge fund industry. Uh, I started with a hedge fund, a beauty hedge fund uh, with 250 million AUM. It was a multi-strat fund. We had 13 people when we start. After four years of that, we had grown to two and a quarter billion of AUM. And Literally, we were taking over from by the Sparks Group of Japan, and the combined force was like 200 plus people. So that was wow. huge. <laughs> yeah. But after that, when we sold the company, my boss at that time, the macro CIO, had moved to work for Steve Cohen as SEC. And myself, I was recruited by Deutsche Proprietary Unit to look after a, a Asian ex Japan portfolio. That's where my biggest failure came in, unfortunately. This was the beginning of the, well, just prior to the beginning of the GFC, 2008. The first two months, I had huge wins. I was really up to my nose on my revenue. So I took a working research trip to Vietnam where I met up with banks, met up with treasuries, met up with some uh, central banks, et cetera, to get an understanding of the financial reforms that was coming. Because Vietnam, previous year, had just joined WTO, and they were supposed to be the next China on financial reforms, on trade reforms, on um, 
just huge fixed income and equity market boost coming through. So I end up purchasing uh, well investments, investing into the agency bonds, government bonds, and the foreign exchange of Vietnam until Bear Stearns got hit. So this was the beginning of the GFC when Bear Stearns got uh, literally taken over by JP Morgan for $2 and then revised back up to 10 And obviously, you know what happened afterwards with Lehman Brothers and, and so on, so on. Uh, literally, my positions had no liquidity overnight, straight away. And I was just sitting on it, waiting, watching, bleeding and bleeding oh. and bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So my huge profit were taken away from me <laughs> and how can you what can you do in those situations do you just wait or you have to find solutions or how do you react to those things i think there was a really bad time because everyone got hit right uh-huh. literally every single bank was hit left right and center not just in particular of these government bonds or agency bonds they were hit on cds they were hit on cdos they were hit on everything foreign exchange whatever so people were very reserved and they were reluctant to take over any risk that was didn't have to say the liquidity for them to get out. Things just got worse and worse. So even though I tried to liquidate the positions, but you know, I got out half of it, but the rest you just literally have to sit through. And it's extremely hard to sit through those situations, obviously, when everyone was panicking. They would just sell mm-hmm. first and ask questions later. And that makes me think a little bit of being kind of a small trader who trades for other people. So I guess you have to talk to the people you're trading for at some point. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, you basically had to talk to everyone. You had, uh-huh. yeah, you had your network in the market. You had to network with your own teammates. You have to network with your bosses and his bosses, etc. Because everyone was panicking, right? I mean, uh-huh. even the CEO of major banks were panicking. And most of them lost their jobs during their GFC, obviously. So people were nervous. And they wanted to know why you're losing money every day. They wanted to know why you're not getting out of positions. And they want to know what is your plan or your solution to the existing problem because they at any single day during GFC, they had 10 problems on their plate mm-hmm. and they just want at least most of them getting off the plate as soon as possible. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so how do you handle those situations? Because I guess it's one thing to have like a losing month and lose some portion of your account, but it's another thing to lose like that big in a situation like that. So how do you react? Because I guess it's a lot of pressure, like much more than just a losing month or a few months. Yes. I think that the point was prior to GFC, not since probably the Asian crisis, that people have experienced total dislocation of financial markets. But it was hitting the main street as well. Obviously, as you can see that the direction coming out of the central banks around the world, even today, we've not started to really unwind those kind of extraordinary quantitative easing and literally blowing up of central bank balance sheets and moving the private world into the government world right we were, even today after 10 years since the what happened we haven't done that so you can see that how big it is right mm-hmm. and i think that not since the 30s when the, the great depression hit us that we've experienced anything like that and this time around the magnitude of the numbers were much much greater yeah. right and I think people, basically, the entire industry has been flipped around. And I don't even know if we ever, ever recover fully into what it used to be. Wow. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> yeah. And what would be one of your main success as a trader like this in an institution? I think, apart from the profitability, my great success will be 
to be able to gain so much mentorship and, and learning path. As you can see that from my path, it's pretty much that I started off foreign exchange. I went to interest rates. I was moving into the buy side equities, the, the hedge fund industry. And then later on, <laughs> I actually ended up doing business development. I tried to set up my own multi-strategy hedge fund uh, with two partners as well. One was an event-driven guy from Morgan Stanley and then a long-shot equity guy from uh, Mirai Investment from South Korea. We were going to get $100 million worth of C coming from a Shanghai IPO, which uh, we spent a year on it. Unfortunately, it collapsed on the last minute and we couldn't get our C and basically spent our 12 months losing time, money, and effort and wow. pretty much devastation. So there's a low, steep learning path along the way. Yeah, right? yeah, there's yeah, yeah. so much going on. While I was doing that, I was actually, uh, to get the cash flow, I was actually helping uh, the accounting firm Ernst & Young as well on a contract. I championed a um, hedging strategy project in Seoul in Korea where Samsung Life Insurance was needing to hedge their annuity program after GFC. And they basically asked several consultants to send a project. And I was uh, recruited by a friend of mine who was a partner there to, uh, to launch our case. And uh, we won that. So I went over to Seoul for six months and basically helped them set up the front, back, middle office and a hedging program for the annuity uh, insurance. Mm-hmm. So there's, there's so much learning path going through, experience, intuition. So I think that's the main gain I had. Yeah. 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 I think those are the I, times you learn best when you kind of have to learn or, you, or either you have to learn or you kind of fail. And yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was like moving into something that is totally strange to me and saying, well, learn, grow, mature, and reflect whatever you have. Otherwise, then just give up. And it was no time to give up. It was just you were too busy trying to swim forward to slow down. Because once you slow down, the sharks are waiting for you just right behind your tail. Absolutely. (laughs) I want to get to your training style a little bit. But before, I kind of want to ask you, what are some of the lessons you got from your mentors? Like the top, let's say, three lessons you got. Okay, firstly is that basically there's no luck for the long-term trader. You get lucky, there's small easy money one or twice. But if you're trying to look for the big trade or consistently over a number of years, if you don't do your homework, you don't have the fundamental knowledge of your trade, you don't have the staying power. So as soon as things go wrong against you, you don't know why you're still in the trade. So you keep getting out, you keep getting back in, you keep getting back out. You got no staying power, you don't have belief in that particular trade or the investment that you do. And I think that it's what distinguishes between the real good macro traders versus everyone else. Mm-hmm. Anything yeah. else that you learned that really made a big impact on you? Because I feel like it's just one is really, really key. But I'm, I'm curious if there's other things that you'll learn along the way. Well, I guess apart from understanding various products and learning path, keep it an open mind. I think that it's hard to... They are very much different traders in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that the idea is to find your own edge. They are long-term traders. They are short-term traders. They are day punters. They are interest rate traders, the FX traders, equity traders. They are quant traders. They are model traders. Everyone is different, but everyone might have started in a similar path as a traineeship under mentor. 
I think the idea is to find your edge, find who you are, and find what path makes you comfortable. Something that you actually benefit from it. Something that you can enjoy your life and enjoy your career. Because it's very hard to wake up in the morning and go to work if you don't love what you do. Yeah. I think that's the main one too. So that brings us to uh, your style. So what will be your training style today? Okay, I'm pretty much a fundamental trader. So the way I do things is I keep up to date with uh, world economic and geopolitical events. And then I look at various economies and then various markets around the world to look for discrepancies. So obviously, I can't look for everything. So I try to keep concentration of number of markets that I'm familiar with. When I was uh, working for big banks with the luxury of uh, going onshore, I usually do go onshore, go and meet up with the local people, the local financial companies, the local banks, even government institutions, central banks, Ministry of Finance, etc., to get an understanding of why things happening in their markets and with their particular economic fundamentals. So once I discover this discrepancy between the market and the fundamentals I believe in, I look for the most efficient way on creating a trade or investment. So the efficiency will come from the risk versus reward. It's using options, the best reward versus risk for this particular discrepancy. Or is it, do I, should I use outrights on foreign exchange? Should it be interest rate play or should it be bond play? Or should I just simply just use a credit play using CDS or moving into the copper bond market, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So there's tools in the toolbox. It's just a matter of deciding which one give you the biggest buck for the beta that's associated with it. Cool. And I guess those are the things that are not necessarily kind of what new traders are going to go into. So how do you pick that kind of type of trading and why did you go that way? Yes, I don't think it's something that you learn on in six months, right? Uh-huh. I was lucky enough to be phone, well, not phone to be recruited by different institutions on different desks by the different areas of the market. Like my last venture was that uh, working for a Malaysian May Bank of Malaysia, mm-hmm. uh, the biggest bank in Malaysia, to handle the two portfolios. One portfolio was onshore China credit market. So I look at what they call the NCD or the, the negotiable certificate of deposits on the RMB issued by banks. And I also do uh, commercial papers by what they call the state control entities and enterprises from uh, mainland China. So they're commercial papers as well in RMB. I also do an offshore credit portfolio where I look at the both high yield and investment grade bonds in both dollar, euro, Australian dollar, and, and the dimson market, which is the CNH market. So I think there's always chance and ability for you to learn. But yes, it's not always a clear path for anyone. When I started as an ethics trader, I had no idea eventually I would actually learn about interest rate. I had no idea I would learn about credit. I had no idea I would actually move from the sell side to the buy side. But the point is, just be ready, right? I mean, learn everything you can from where you are. And when that opportunity comes along, then you're ready to leave and move into the next path. And if you're given that opportunity, just jump at it. Right, especially when you're young. I mean, I'm too old to probably do too much jumping now. But <laughs> when you're young, when you're energetic, when you're dynamic, just do it. Take the risk. Right, mm. even though if there's a a slight dip in your beneficiary on that short term, 
in the long run, it goes into the CV and you, you'll benefit from it. Right? Once you learn everything, oh, you never learn everything. But once you have enough tools in your toolbox, then when opportunities comes up where you actually have a selection of that tool for that particular risk versus reward trade, you know what to do. Mm-hmm. Well, good advice, I think. And you started to trade probably as young as I did or probably in that area. Because I know a lot of people listening to this podcast are not that young. So what would be your advice for those people who start to trade like in their late 40s or even older than that? What would you recommend them? Well, it depends on if you're going to be a, a part-time trader that with a normal, regular job, regular life, or you're going to be a full-time trader. I always say it's always easy to make up your mind when your job is also trading, right? Yeah. When you're hired by a bank or hired by a hedge fund and you literally don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your world is surrounded by trading. So you learn everything from it. You learn from your mentor, et cetera. But if you have to do it part-time on your own with a regular job, then you've actually got a lot to learn, uh, a lot on your hand. And uh, I, I would probably say that start very young if that's the case. <laughs> Because you know, if you're just doing it part-time, you probably – it'll be five to seven years before you really have enough tools in your toolbox. Yeah. It could be very tough, right? Because uh, like I said before, you could get lucky once in a while, but you know, you can't always fall back on your luck. Mm-hmm. You need that intuition, the fundamental in your base to fall back on and to have the staying power in the trade when things don't go your way. Mm-hmm. And what do you think are the things traders kind of have to learn? Like, whatever style they're at, whatever things they look at in the market. Do you see some things that everyone has to learn all the time? I think it's always good to understand the fundamentals of the world. I mean, to be alert, right? You could be a short-term arbitrager on, on the exchange, but you might not need that information for the fundamental side, for the economic events that goes around the world. But you need to know it. You need to know when things happen, mm-hmm. right? Just because you're arbing one or two ticks in the market and you're making a living out of it, if North Korea decided to send a missile that goes straight into Tokyo or Seoul tomorrow, that one or two ticks will evaporate straight away. The spreads will widen. You will not know what to do. But if you don't know the event and you haven't read the news and you don't know what it possibly could cause, you could be in quiet strife and you'd be panicking. The last thing a trader wants to be it's continue panicking when event goes on and you have no clue yeah yeah at the same time though i feel like events can make us panic when we don't know what to do so if let's say you see an event in the news you should you stop trading if you're not comfortable with it or should you try to analyze how things are and decide to trade or not i think that's the point about preparation if you understand beforehand that the nitty-gritties of particular event if you read about it if you study it And you know that it's most likely going to be the headline that comes through for the next week or next month or whatever. Then literally, you have a plan in hand. It might not be a very detailed plan, but at least you know. You know that, for example, if Trump starts retreating against the North Korean missiles firing over Hokkaido this morning, for example, then you know that chances are he's going to talk something very aggressive. Then the market might sell off because of that particular treat. But the point is, unless Congress or UN follow through 
with his aggression on the wording, then chances are the market might not sell off as badly as the initial reaction will be. So there could actually potentially be some bottle fishing relating to it. There could be a when China and Russia comes out and try to put down a negotiation path with North Korea. Maybe that when the US, South Korea and Japan back off a bit and decided not to conduct any more military exercise on the front doorstep of North Korea, North Korea will also back off. They might come to the negotiating table once again. So the initial panic might actually be an opportunity for you to create a strategy, a trade that will benefit in the medium term. But unless you actually done your homework and know anything about this whole event, you got no idea. You just simply panic sell and you might even go short the market. And chances are you slowly get squeezed out. So that's how I would probably look at it. Just be prepared for when it happens, even though it might not happen. Yeah, I think that's fascinating. It's pretty interesting. And I'm probably the first one not paying enough attention to fundamentals. But something I'll definitely look into for sure. Is there anything we didn't touch on that you would like to mention people or teach people something that they have to learn or apply? I think there's a lot lot to learn, a lot of path. Actually, right now I'm working, as you mentioned, about Mandy, right? She's actually um, creating these uh, coaching courses where I'm working with her to pay back to the world, pay back to the market participants. So I think the industry has been done well for me. It's actually um, allowed me a lot of opportunities, a lot of mentorship into my experience, et cetera. So right now, I'm, I'm working with her in the sense that we're trying to give back. And I think uh, going forward, hopefully, there will be uh, a lot more information I could help to deliver to new traders or even experienced traders who, who hasn't had enough tools in the toolbox that wish to add more onto it. Mm-hmm. Pretty interesting. Do you consider yourself to be kind of retired from the institutional side or not completely? Well, I'm very happy to be back in Australia. I'm very happy to be settling back with my family. I don't think, I think I'm still quite energetic and dynamic enough to continue the career path. So I, I'm not retired from anything, put it this way. But I'm just simply uh, working, hopefully, to look for the next opportunity that would bring another learning path to my box of ticks. Wonderful. <laughs> Wonderful. So how can people find you if they want to connect with you or reach out after the podcast? Okay. So basically the website, sorry, I need to read this out. The website is by Mandy's, the one that to look for me. It's www.highperformancetrading.com.au. Right. I, I could send you those information yeah, as well. Yeah. So well, if we anyone wants to. Show notes yeah. For sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Uh, so if they want to look for us and uh, they want to talk, they want to chat, they will just simply ask anything about my career path or anything that I could reflect upon. Happy to help. Yeah, great stories. And what are your goals for the future? I think moving forward, definitely family is a very serious goal for the future. My daughter enters high school in Australia and that's a big event, obviously. I'm uh, happy to be back here to work on this particular project with Mandy. Hopefully there'll be other type of venture goes through um, on the career path as well. The bottom line, the big goal is trying to stay happy, trying to enjoy the things I do, trying to matter to people around you. 
Nice, nice. And what's your motivation for all this? Motivation? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I guess if it's just for the investment trading motivation, I think it's always a good idea that you know that once you've done your homework, once you treat your mind and be ready for things, you could actually beat the market. You know, the market is efficient, but you could actually beat it. I think that's the whole point of being a trader, to have the ability. And when that result comes out and you've actually front run this particular vast marketplace of so many individuals, then you feel the honor. Right? Mm-hmm. You think you've, your work has come to a fruition. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a challenge. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Love it. Awesome. Well, Yana, I have this question I ask my guest at the end of every single podcast. If you could give only one piece of advice for traders in one sentence, what would that one sentence of advice be? Don't rely on luck. Do your homework. Learn the fundamentals on things. Even though if you're a technical trader, just learn as much as you can on things because one day it'll come out that you need it in the toolbox. Awesome. Powerful, powerful. Well, Yan Fung, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you, Etienne. So that was it, guys, for the interview with William Fung. I really hope you liked it. Make sure to check out his work. He's doing some awesome stuff lately. As always, the best discussion happened after the show into the Facebook group over at desartotrade.com forward slash group. Make sure to join the group. Feel free to connect with me or interact if you need any help. And I will see you guys next week for the next episode of the Desart Trade podcast. Ciao. Thanks for listening to the Desire to Trade podcast. To get all the information on this show, free articles, and unique resources, make sure to check out www.desiretotrade.com and subscribe. Please leave us a review and let us know what you thought about the show. It's time to become the best trader you can be. See you next time.